I've never seen a difference between the public service and the military in those acquisition sustainment organisations. We're unified by that powerful, we're here to defend Australia. We have a sense of purpose, we have a sense of unity that revolves around that. We're supporting the Defence Force. Tony Dalton was born and educated in Victoria before joining the Navy in 1980 as a direct entry aviator, completing his pilot training in 1981. Over the next 17 years, he amassed over 5,500 flying hours, making Tony one of the most experienced Australian naval aviators. He flew on four Australian naval air squadrons. He commanded the 805 Squadron during 2000 and 2001 and the Fleet Air Arm in 2008 and 2009. Tony was promoted to Rear Admiral in 2012 to head the Defence Material Office Helicopter Systems Division, responsible for the acquisition, sustainment and disposal of ADF's rotary wing and tactical unmanned aerial system assets. Tony took over as the head of the Joint Systems Division in 2015 before retiring from the Navy in early 2016. In 2017, he joined the Australian Public Service and was appointed as the General Manager Ships and became responsible for the National Naval Shipbuilding within the Capability Acquisition and Sustainment Group in the Department of Defence. Tony, up until late last week, all we knew about you, based on you having a very small digital footprint, is you like helicopters, especially the Tiger. Uh, you're born and educated in Victoria. You live on the south coast with your two children and your wife, and you're passionate about people. And as I said to my team, if that's all we've got, I don't think this is going to be a very long podcast, but I've spoken to some of your colleagues. We've had a, a chat before. There's so much more to you. And, and what I'd like today to provide a rough frame for things. Number one, we'll talk about your career journey. I want to know about a young Tony. How, what was he like? Why did he choose this career? Two, a little bit about your personal story. Three, lessons you've had that you can really give to other people in their career around social mastery. And we're going to finish with what we call the high performance baker's dozen. Let's start with number one, your career journey. Why did you choose this vocation? How, where? Go back to when this all started. Uh, this started when I was about two and I skipped wanting to be a fireman and a policeman, went straight to pilot and never grew out of it. So it really did start all that way back and, and I've had that kind of focus on on wanting to be a pilot since I was little. I came from a very kind of typical 1960s, 70s Catholic family. You know, I'm the oldest of five. Dad was a public servant. There was never a lot of money around. We never had a new car. So dad paying for flying lessons probably wasn't gonna happen. So that kind of narrows your options around what do you want to do, um, how do you become a pilot. You know, I used to wash aircraft. As you said, I grew up in Victoria. I used to ride my bike up to Moorabbin Airport and, and, you know, wash five or six aircraft and they'd take me for a quick circuit at the end of the day. So all those things were part of it. But, but so that really was your was, payment for washing the aircraft. They'd yeah. say, jump in, we'll go for a, a flight. We'll just take you around the circuit, yeah. So if I go back to those two, did you watch a movie? Was there a book or something? Was the Catholic Church located near an air runway? No, it was just one of those. It's just one of those things, you know. I fell off the chair and hit my head or something. But um, it's it's something that I've always been drawn to. Yeah, I joined the Air Cadets as soon as I could. Got to go flying through them. It's a really good program if you've got kids growing up. The, the Air Cadets is a really good program if they're interested in in aviation. Uh, so that that was all kind of you know contributing to where I went and, and I was a, probably a bit of a dag at school having a goal really helped point me in the right direction kept me on track I was very easily distracted having that goal knowing what I had to achieve really made school meaningful for me because I had a because I had that goal and I think that's kind of stayed stayed with me so I was 17 when I finished school I applied to join the military when I was in the final year of school, when I was you know, 16, 17, and kind of went through the recruiting process. As most people who'd go through the recruiting process know it's part of the filter program. You have to be pretty incentivized to keep going. I worked my way through that, had a few little hiccups on the way through the recruiting. But ultimately, I was too young to apply to, join, to be a pilot in the army, but I had applied to be a pilot in the Air Force and in the Navy. They both flew fighters at the time. This is back in 1979. 
And in those olden days, when you got your results, you didn't get them on the day, you did all your interviews, and then they sent you a telegram, a bit like what the, what the Queen used to do when you turned 100. So they sent you a telegram saying you've been accepted into the Air Force or the Navy on this particular day for this particular course. On one particular day, I got two telegrams that I've been accepted into the Air Force and the Navy for the same pilot's course. And, and the Air Force and the Navy do the same pilot's course. It's exactly the same. So I did what every 17-year-old um, boy does. And I said, well, what do you reckon, Mum? <laughs> Air Force or Navy? And, and Mum said, the Navy uniforms are so much nicer, dear. And 39 years later, I was still in the Navy. Love it. I love when you actually pull on the thread and find out the technical reason why. There were two options. Mum said, I like the uniform. Now, for any of the yep. Gen Y or millennial staff listening to this, they don't understand a telegram, uh, Google it. Uh, let's now days it would come as a text or it would be an instant <laughs> message, right? Now, I just want to re reverse it's a, back. It's a thing before faxes. Yeah, before faxes. Oh, gosh, we're going down that path, aren't we? I love doing podcasts and interviewing people like you. As I said at the start, I didn't know a lot about you. Well, We're going to explore people. that. No, mature people. I don't use the word old. But there's an oxymoron that I have to come back to because you're super focused. Anyone who knows what they want to do for a vocation from two years of age is super focused, but you're easily distracted. Talk to me about the dance between those two things. I'm a very visually orientated person. I'm, uh, I'm reasonably good at drawing things. And that kind of comes down from my dad's side uh, and it's kind of flowed into my daughters and one daughter in particular is very artistic. Things moving, distractions, um, you know, the bright shiny toy is always a bit of an issue for people with the mind that works kind of bizarrely like mine. You know, I do know what I want. I do, I am able to focus on things, but you know, if I get a little bit bored or uh, I'm very easily distracted. How did that show up? Did you, were you naughty? Did you stir people oh, did you go yeah. and read more i was in a fair bit of trouble most of the time i mean some people will say that hasn't changed that's kind of been a career constant for me uh, and i think that's that's kind of related to two things i am you know relatively easily distracted and and i'm not very smart uh, so uh, you know the people who are good at doing naughty things tend to always leave the silly person holding the cat I really didn't mean to be holding the cat, sir. <laughs> All my friends have run away and I'm still holding the cat. So, you know, I think that was that was kind of a bit of a a bit of a theme. The cat you're holding now running the job you're doing, it's it's not a bad cat. <laughs> There's gotta have been some progression and learning along the way. So you chose or your mum chose the navy because of the uniform. And then when you rocked up there, did you get dropped off by a bus? Back then I think that's the tradition, is it? Most people get the bus. Oh, well, it was kind of, yeah, so I I joined the Navy as an officer. So we they flew us to Sydney, left mum and dad and my two brothers and my two sisters at the airport. They said goodbye to me. I'd, I'd just turned 18 and got on, I think it was a TAA flight up to Sydney. And then we had to make our own way to King's Cross. And we, we got put up for the night at the People's Palace in King's Cross. Who designed a program to put 17-year-old young men and uh, yeah. women in the in middle King's of King's Cross. Cross? Now, for anyone who's around these days, King's Cross back then, it was the party place, it was the trouble place, it was the, the underground or the underbelly in, in Australia was King's Cross. Yeah, it was certainly eye-opening for uh, you know a boy from the burbs in Melbourne you know, first night away from home, having left home in King's Cross with, you know, probably about 20 or 30 other, you know, and, and at that stage they were pretty well all young men that we hadn't really met. And then we were on the train all the way down to Bomaderry on the south coast and then, then the Navy bus from Bomaderry for about an hour down to the Navy Officer Training School at, at Creswell on the, on the shores of Jarvis Bay. That was entertaining which is a beautiful part of the world, and your family live there now. So there's obviously a connection with you. You've stayed in that area. But what, what were the first years like? What were you doing? What was your job? What was the training? Who, if it was a, a person or any incidents that really influenced you back then? Because a lot of people, my understanding, Tony, is they joined Defence Force. They might do it for a few years, but you did it for decades. So there was something from the two-year-old that then went there down to the south coast. It's something that kept you there. I mean, I joined the Navy to be a pilot. 
and they used to have this kind of two streams of officers the what they used to call the general list the career officers who are going to go off and be admirals and then there was the supplementary list that were you know they have a five to ten years to fill the gap to beat, broaden out the base but not not necessarily careerists and and most of the air crew because air crew is a very small part of navy most of the air crew were supplementary list so i joined the navy on a short service commission for 10 years to be a pilot we meant to spend six weeks at officer training we actually only spent five because the the air force had slightly oversubscribed the course and they asked us to come down early quite literally within two months of joining the Navy that they'd fitted me out for a uniform and then sent us down to Point Cook where pilots course used to be. The first six months of pilots course flying CD4s was down at Point Cook in Melbourne. So I was learning to fly inside the first two months of joining the Navy. Went solo um, you know, while I was you know, still 18. Before I got my driver's license, because you couldn't get your driver's license until you were 18 in Victoria when I left. So I hadn't, I didn't have a driver's license when I started flying. And then finished, finished at Point Cook at the end of six months. Um, it was a challenging period. Um, we started with about 54 guys and they were, they were all, all, young, all young blokes uh, on my pilot's course. When we left Point Cook, there was 27 of us left. And that's not a sign of skill or aptitude, really. That's, that's a sign of pretty well anyone can fly an aeroplane. The military way of flying is you have to learn really, really fast. And if you can't keep up with the learning gradient, then they let you go. So we lost over half of the course in that first six months. So that was pretty brutal. I mean, if you ever you know, have any self-doubts, <laughs> that, that kind of environment certainly can play into it. You don't know whether to make friends or not because you don't know whether they're going to be there next week or not. It sounds like a great environment for an easily distracted kid. I'm serious because you had lots and lots of stimulation. I wasn't a natural at it, so I had to work quite hard at it. Out of the 27 people that finished the first, that first part of the flying training, I was ranked number 26. I knew that because I found out when I went to the next part of flight pilot training, which was in Western Australia at Pierce, where we got to fly jets. And when I, when we started flying jets, they go faster, but they're simpler. They don't have a propeller, so there's no torque. They stay balanced. So you don't need to use your feet as much. So all of a sudden, I had a bit of my brain that was freed up. And, and I found flying jets really, really enjoyable. And, and I got a lot better at it a lot a lot quicker than some of the other kids that were with us. So I went from being 26th out of 27th to being third out of 21 when we finished. It was a lot of it was a lot of fun. I still had hiccups, and you know, every time you you can still make a mistake that sets you back. And I had a couple of those. But the the second half of pilot's course, I found a lot more enjoyable and stimulating because we were going faster, uh, and I didn't have to use my feet as much. <laughs> So it was, uh, for a guy who was pretty unco, that, that actually made a lot of sense to me. So that was really good. And, and when we finished pilot's course, they actually, at the end of pilot's course, you get told what you're going to do next. And they actually said to me that I was going to go off and fly fighters in the Navy, which was, you know, what I'd aimed to do, which is really, really cool. And then right at the last week, we had 10 Navy guys started my course. And right up until the last week, there were still four of us left. And in the last week, one of the Navy guys failed, which is, you know, you can just imagine how devastating that would be to go through 18 months of super intensive flying training and get to the last week and not pass. And uh, I just felt terrible for him. But the consequence of, of him failing was the Navy said, I still need three helicopter pilots. So instead of going off to fly jets, I went off to fly helicopters. Uh, and thinking about it, it was probably the best thing that happened to me, actually, because otherwise I probably would have done my six or seven years and got out and become a Qantas pilot like 98% of all my other Air Force peers. I've met so many pilots and even overseas. <laughs> what was your background? Oh, I was in the Navy. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was in the Air Force. I've got to ask, it's a cliche, and I try and avoid cliches in podcast discussions, but... One of my favourite movies in the last 18 months is Top Gun Maverick. 
your thoughts on that movie first of all yes <laughs> did you enjoy it can you can you watch it and disconnect from oh, maybe the technicalities of it or the the hype and not actual truths on flying if you approach it with a willingness to suspend belief, then you know it's an enjoyable movie. And I, you know, I have in, I've enjoyed both of them. And it, it's interesting that if the character Maverick had been a real character, we would have been almost peers. You know, pretty well classmates. He he would have gone through pilot's course at about the same time as me. So we would have had a a similar career path. Uh, and and the interesting thing in the in the second movie is that. The only realistic character is probably Ice, who's ended up as that kind of admiral. Uh, the US Navy, at that senior level, they have an up and out policy, or up or out. Um, so if you don't get promoted, you leave. You would never be a captain in his 50s still flying in the US Navy. But if you suspend that... Apart then, from yeah, that. Yeah, nah. there's a... There's, yeah, apart from that, the, the flying scenes are brilliant, and that's all done with the support of the US Navy. And uh, you know, it is, I think that was there's bits in it. You know, you're probably not going to find a tomcat sitting in the desert that you could just jump into and take off. But apart from that, yeah, even I like even that bit. I thought that's not realistic. But I, what what I've learned from reading is a, a great article in GQ magazine about the training that they did behind that. So Tom Cruise wanted all of the actors to go and do pilot training and actually to sit in, in I don't think it was the exact aircraft, but to experience Gs and, and to experience the sickness. And I think the result of that is a, a movie that looks very real. I, explain that. What, what is that feeling like? And then before I go down that, uh, your call sign was adults? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I'm lucky. I joined the Navy with... With a with kind of a nickname already. I used to play Aussie Rules as a kid. In my under sixteen Aussie Rules football team, there were three Tonys. So the coach just said, "That's too hard. You're Dolts." Uh, so I already had Dolts. Otherwise, I would have been Spewboy or something terrible. So. <laughs> All right, we'll pick up on that Spewboy. <laughs> Talk to us about the the training. There's a, there's a U.S. Navy aviator admiral who who I know quite well who um, used to be helping out Australia a lot in foreign military sales. He was an F-18 pilot, uh, and his call sign was Spanky. Okay. And I kid you not, he you know when we had conversations as two old grown men, um, yeah, it's Dalton Spanky. I want to ask How so many. I want to ask so many questions now. <laughs> yeah, about, I didn't ask him. No, no, you just let that one through. <laughs> oh wow, the mind boggles. That's what I love about podcasts. You find out that Spanky is a very senior pilot in the U.S. Air Force. Spanky, if you're listening to this, in the U.S. Navy. big hello, U.S. Navy. Yeah. yeah. Have you had formal media training? Because when I watched the footage back of you and Rear Admiral Wendy, it's like you press play. I think they don't they call you. Or do you call yourself one take Tony? Uh, I do try and get them done in one take because it's more. They tend to be more authentic. If you over rehearse it, you know it becomes fairly obvious. When did so, you do your media training? I did it probably the first lot back when I was about to become the XO of eight one six squadron. So probably nineteen ninety six, uh, and I've probably done. You know, and these are like a day of. So you know, I can look down the barrel of a camera. I can visualise people on the other side of it. I know how to. You know, I've been interviewed on television a few times, mainly around rescues and things like that. So there, there's there is part of it, but I think I think the other part of it is a lot about being aircrew is about acting. It's about you know you have to play a role that inspires confidence, and that's that's a big part of what we do. The training certainly helps you if you if you don't have that inner confidence, you can't project it. But there is a there is an element around. You don't want to get into your flight to LA and have the pilot go, well, I'm not terribly sure whether I'm going to make it all the way today, but but we'll give it a go. Um, you want that kind of cool, yep, I've got it all um, persona. And and, that, and that's the way we're trained. And I think that comes out in, in those different environments. Well, I think with, with mastery of any topic, one, you've got to get a bit of training. And two, it's the reps and sets and the practice. And when you get those yeah. two things, you get to a level of competence. So you've had yeah. both. You've had the training, then you've done the work. Yeah. So uh, when you started 
flying. Uh, you, you chose helicopters, but well, they talk, chose talk helicopters us, for me. Yeah, so talk us through that because it's full on some of the training you go through, full on some of the experiences you would have found yourself in. Helicopters is good because it's, it's lots of hands and feet. So not a lot of autopilots, certainly in the in the little ones. The bigger the helicopter gets, the easier they tend to be to fly because they have more automation uh, in them. But the, the little helicopters that you start off on, um, they're very raw and it just helps to be a little bit uncoordinated like me. So it doesn't feel wrong to be descending around a corner with top pedal going in to counter the torque. And for all the pilots who are listening that, they'll understand that you, you normally try to keep the aircraft very coordinated uh, and balanced and helicopters go all over the place. So you, know, you have to do what feels quite unnatural sometimes to keep them pointing in the right direction. So it, it kind of, I fell into that. And again, I, I did pretty well on it because I think it, it just appealed to the way my little brain works. And, uh, and I got, weirdly, uh, we did our helo conversion course here in Canberra, where I am now over at Fairburn. So I arrived in Fairburn in 1982, just off, off pilot's course, you know, 19 years old, hair on fire, because I still had hair then. Yeah, all those boy things that mums get really worried about, you know, their little boy brain not fully developed, you know, no real risk awareness, invincible, been taught to fly very, very fast, very, very low. Actually, while I was in Canberra, I got taught to drive cars very, very fast, uh, which was thinking about it, probably not the wisest thing to do to a 19 year old who already thought he was indestructible. But the, the course here was moved along at a very fast pace, like military flying training tends to. And it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. You got to do a lot of things that really challenge you. Fly very low, you know. Fly up right up against close things like trees. Do all sorts of really interesting things. Um, and it just it just clicked with me. You know, helicopters are also one of those challenging machines. A lot of rotating parts. They don't always work perfectly. So uh, towards the end of the, my training here, I crashed for the first time because the kind of engine stopped it wasn't me although they thought it was me to start off with so I got two awards at the end of the helo conversion course and, and they're normally not this they're normally not given to the same person so I got the award um, for ducksing the course for being you know the, the highest student on the course but I also got the award for doing the most damage to a helicopter on the course as well so I've got to pick up on that because you talk about that fairly casually I crashed during the course for the first time yeah 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 well the first time okay we'll come back to that what what goes through your head when that happens how, how do you i can't even possibly think how how do you prepare for that how do you train people to be calm in a situation like that well that's the beauty of the of the training uh it, it is all about preparing you to deal with the unexpected I don't think any passenger likes it when something goes wrong and the pilot starts squealing. You know, there's a lot of emphasis put on how to deal with unexpected, how to deal with malfunctions. We think about it all the time. We, we, we talk about it before we go flying. What will we do if something goes wrong? What will we do if the engine stops at the worst possible time? And, and you're trained for it. You spend a lot of time, you know, the, the first half of the course once you learn how to hover, and that takes about you know three or four flights, and they progressively make the paddock that you have to hover in smaller. But but once you learn how to hover, then the next kind of four weeks is spent. What happens when it stops? What happens when the engine stops? What happens if the tail rotor stops? What happens if you know the electrics fall over or the hydraulics stop? Or so you learn how to manage all of those all of those consequences which is, you know, is what makes aviators, when we talk about risk management, and, and, and I spend a lot of time in my current job talking about risk management, aviators have grown up in that environment right from your very first flight. They talk about what happens if this goes wrong? What happens if this goes wrong? So you're always thinking about it. When you fly, when you fly a single engine helicopter, if you're flying in daytime over land, you're kind of flying from field to field. You're always looking at, 
I won't fly over that little copse of trees because if the engine stops, that could be awkward. I'll just go a little bit around it. So I've always got somewhere to land. I'm always looking for somewhere to land if the engine stops. I can't that's, help but that's think the way you're, we're trained. you're training in the Navy and flying helicopters for years has positioned you beautifully for your role as heading national shipbuilding and sustainment. But like as you're talking about that, I'm just thinking, how do you train someone to go into a dynamic, fast-paced, fast-moving business in the APS, but also working with Navy, reporting to Secretary of Defence and the Chief of Defence Force? It's almost like it's a perfect career transition to do that training. Now, but being a bit flippant, because you did a lot of work along the side as well, extra study. But I, I think a lot of people miss that in the early parts of their career. I see this a lot, Tony, in banking and finance, in uh, some of the work we do in consulting firms, that people you know, up until COVID hadn't had a lot of change in their life. Whereas what you'd done, you'd constantly trained for change, case scenario, what if this happens? I think that's given you a superpower. And I think it would give a lot of people in the military a skill set that they don't even realise how powerful it is. Yeah, I don't know whether it's a superpower, but it certainly makes you think about things in a in a different way. And I think a lot of it is because that they were dealing with you know really young boys whose brains were immature, and that that whole risk taking part of their brain doesn't exist until you're about thirty. So you know they have to kind of train it into you. They want you to take risks, but they also want you to be able to understand the consequences. That's the big bit of it. And that's what I think makes, probably makes military aviators, those natural risk managers in other, in other fields as well, because they have that, they've grown up with that kind of mindset about, well, what do I do if this goes wrong? How do I work this? It doesn't stop you doing it, but it means you've thought about what you might have to do if it doesn't work out. One of your colleagues back when you started a guy named harry went works now for my business and we said this when we first met you went through uh cadet school didn't you or you went th through your initial we were, training we were pretty with harry close. we were pretty close in, in our initial training periods yeah harry went on to have a very coveted career at westpac so you're talking about risk management and uh managing multiple parties and he now works uh in in our business he heads up our digital piece but yeah it's interesting harry's just one of the calmest people I've ever met. Never seen him really stressed. I, I think there's a reason for that, some of that training. Yeah, I probably took it all out of him when we flew together. <laughs> right, I changed channels a little bit. Uh, I said the first bit I wanted to talk about was your career development. We're going to come back to social mastery in a moment. I do want to though just find out a little bit more about you as a person. Uh, you work in Canberra. Your family are on the south coast. They live in Berry. Well, my wife lives in Berry. Your wife lives in Barrie, okay. And your children? So my children are grown up. So my oldest daughter's 32, she's down in Melbourne. And my youngest daughter is, I'm gonna say 28. <laughs> and she um, she lives up in Tamworth. Okay, so when you are all back in Barrie, what's the hierarchy like then? Are, are you still the grand fromage? Is there, is there a reporting structure at home or? Um... Oh yeah, definitely, yeah, there, there's some, um, so the other, the other girl in my family is our seven-year-old bulldog, Daphne. So the pecking order is kind of like mum, daughter, daughter, dog, dad. I hear this a lot when I interview CEOs of large companies as well. And some people struggle with that. You, you're very self-deprecating. I don't think you would struggle with that. But the question I do have, how do you shift? Because when you're at work... And especially in you know, your office, it, it's very, you know, even where you look, you look down towards New Parliament House, everything is very official. It's, it's, it's regal. It's, there's this ceremony and then you go home and, and you're wearing a tracksuit on the Saturday morning and you're going to get, I, I love the donut store. Are you anywhere near that? I'm not meant oh, to yeah. mention. We've got a well-being slant to this podcast. The world-famous berry donut van, yes. Sometimes the smell of cinnamon donuts wafts over the fence on a Saturday morning and for no reason at all, you can be thinking, hmm, I could do with a donut right mm. now. Homer Simpson, donuts. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Have you had to learn how to change role? So when you go home, you're, you're dad, you're not in charge all the time? I don't think so. And again, it might be that it might be some of that Navy aircrew experience. We work in teams and teams are very important to me and the way I think and work. You know, very early in my career, you learn very quickly that you have to work in a team. There's a, the, the crew inside your aircraft is a team. 
and there's no rank inside the aircraft. Doesn't matter what rank you are. If you're, you know, the only hierarchy in the aircraft is the aircraft captain has the final safety say. When I was flying as a as a junior pilot with a, a non-pilot officer beside me and a, a non-officer sensor operator in the back, all three of us had to rely intimately on each other to get back to the boat without getting wet. And that's that's the key. We all, no one was more important than anyone else. We all had to work together as a team to achieve the mission and get back, safely back uh, at the end of it. On board the ship, you're part of the flight. The flight is the air crew and the maintainers. And you have to work together. You know, you don't want the maintainers, you know, thinking that you're a complete idiot. Um, you want them to go that extra mile to make sure the aircraft stays serviceable. And then you sit inside a ship and a ship is a team in itself. You know, we're all out there with a very clear mission. So you, you're in these cascading series of teams. I don't see the pomp and the ceremony in my current role. I, I just see that I'm in a different team. I have, I have a little team that, that I work with. Um, you know, you've met Karen and Nick and we all do slightly different things, but we all contribute to the same outcome. Uh, and it's, that's the team. And then I have the, the leadership team and then I have the teams inside the divisions. And then we have the kind of one defense team. That's just the way I think my upbringing has generated it. I don't, I don't see that elite or pomp or ceremony or separation. I just see there's different forms of teams. And when I go home, it's another form of team. Navy wives or Navy partners are special. <laughs> I spent a lot of my girl's childhood at sea. Hmm. I think it's a parallel to a lot of athletes I've worked with, male and female athletes who travel a lot. And it's, it's, that's, a, that's, a real, that's a real partnership and it's a team that, again, there's no one's more important or, or not. It's, it's a real balance around how that family dynamic works. And I see that kind of family dynamic working like a team as well. If you, if you can't be a team you know, in, in the family environment and support each other through different elements as, as you each you know, transition through your life, then that, that makes it more, more difficult. So to me, there's lots of parallels between all those. And, and they, to me, in my head, they all rotate around being in teams. Mm. Well, it's obviously working because you're still connected as a family. I do see a lot of especially men who run large businesses outside of defence and they really struggle. I think it just gets ingrained or the wiring is that they are in charge and they often act like that at home. They soon get dragged down a peg or two, but it creates a lot of friction. So it sounds like having that base in your training and the Navy shifting between teams, you've been able to navigate that really well. Oh, yeah, there's, there's always friction and no one's is never, ever, ever, ever perfect. But I think having that, that view that, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the centre of the universe. I'm part of a team. And, and for it to work, we all have to revolve around each other. That's, that's, a big, that's a big part of it. Talking to people about you, getting to know you, you're very calm. You're very balanced training makes sense the training you've done i'm always curious to know a person's path and if there are any major events that shaped you any major events that formed you or any major events that that really just changed your view so was it anything that happened through school was there anything that happened through your training in the military that either jolted you or gave you a whole different perspective the nature of the training that the willingness to learn, the willingness to be part of the team, I think is 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 that I think it helps a lot if you believe in the mission. And I think the military, what in, while in some ways there was a sense of I wanted I wanted to be a pilot, and this was how I could be a pilot. The other bit of it was that I, I grew up in a family where community service was valued. I grew up in a in a community where community service was valued. I mean, mum was the president of the mother's club at school for must have been almost a decade, I think. But those things were were appreciated. The, the way I was taught at school was that the, how to contribute to the community. And being in the Navy, you get a sense that you're contributing 
to the community. And that's that's always been part of the value equation for me is that there's a sense that I am contributing to the community. Being a helicopter pilot makes that more obvious sometimes where you get to go out and do rescues. Some of them are kind of famous and a lot of them aren't. But being able to go out and, and use your skills, use the military equipment that you have to actually make a difference. And we see that with you know defence forces in the floods, in, in bushfires. You know, I've, I remember doing bushfires around Sydney in 1994. They're really how you can contribute to the community. That's a very positive thing. That's a very powerful thing for me. And I still sense that in, in these roles that I'm in now about how we contribute to the community. So I think that's more of the driver than any kind of light bulb moment. My limited understanding, so I might totally butcher this question, Tony, and for everyone listening, don't drop out just yet. But were there challenges along the way or did they purposely throw challenges at you to see how you would adapt, to see how you continue to evolve and to learn? Uh, yeah, like I said, you know, pilot's course is one of those really brutal things. It's, we started with about 54 people, we graduated 21. So failure is a real, is a real thing and, and, and you can't help but be, have that in the back of your mind the whole time you're under training. And, it, and it's one of those things, you know, I, had, I always kind of struggled a little bit with numbers and, you know, for a, for a pilot, you know, math, you, have, you know, at school you had to do maths and science, physics, chemistry, and I really, I really struggled. That's a pretty <laughs> big part of flying an aircraft, my understanding. My, my little brain doesn't quite work that way. It's, as I said, it's more visually orientated. And, and it actually, it really wasn't until until I was 24, and and you know we had this wonderful organisation, Defence, the Defence Science and Technology organisation that that does wonderful, wonderful work. Uh, and and every so often, you know, that we can be used as a, as part of their science programs. Um, and aircrew were used quite a bit at different times in their science programs. And one of the things I was involved in when I was around 24 was I was flying Sea Kings. You know, helicopter designed to operate in the northern hemisphere keeps everyone quite warm. You know, where we were operating it, <laughs> it used to heat you up really, really efficiently and uh, maybe too efficiently. Um, so thermal stress was a thing. Um, you could sweat buckets uh, on a four or five hour sortie. And they wanted to do an experiment to see how we were responding cognitively to thermal stress. So they took us down to Victoria to their science lab in Fisherman's Bend and and the plan was they were going to heat us up and measure our performance wearing all of our flying kit and doing tasks that require mental acuity uh, but before they did the warming up bit they did the control tests so they had a baseline when we weren't stressed and, a, and could see how our performance degraded or not as they heated us up and we had to swallow the internal thermometer so they could measure our temperature. That was one of the most unpleasant things of it. Mm. But when they were doing the control test, there's one particular control test where the numbers kind of flash up, speed up and slow down on the screen and you have to type in the numbers as you see them. And of course, you know, I did that and the boffins come up to you afterwards and go, let's just do that test again. Okay, so we did the control test again and it turns out I wasn't doing very well at the control test. And with a little bit more testing, they were able to come out and say to me, which is you know, quite confronting as a 24-year-old pilot, to say, well, you know, we actually think you're mildly, it's only mildly dyslexic. And we're really interested in how your brain works because we don't understand how you passed high school, let alone passed pilot's course. And kind of thinking back on it, you know, I obviously used strategies to, uh, and anyone who knows me knows they always have to double check my numbers. I'll get the kind of the digits right, but they'll be in a random order. And I can transpose P's and Q's, nines and sixes. Um, all those things happen without me really realizing it. And perhaps I shouldn't be telling everybody this. I'm not sure. I'm just wondering about <laughs> the coordinates yeah. P, six, nine. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Is it a $96 billion program or a $69 billion? I don't know. All of those things are kind of are things where I've had to develop strategies to deal with it. And, I, and I've done it without realizing it because I had a goal and, and that goal was so important to me that, that I did all these other things. And I think of, when I think of numbers, I really am thinking of bananas, I'm picturing bananas. I know that sounds kind of weird, but I know the exhaust gas temperature limit on a seeking Rolls-Royce Gnome engine is 851 bananas. 
but I don't know my phone number. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, look, I, I find it f- fascinating. I've worked with a number of very clever people, especially entrepreneurs. You know, you know there's a, a much higher percentage of entrepreneurs who have mild forms of dyslexia. So you go through even Richard Branson, some of the world's designers. I know David Gingell, former CEO of Channel 9, and I've heard David openly talk about it as well. And while at school there were some areas that he struggled with, it gave him, as he says, a superpower about communication and storytelling. So I can't help but think this has helped you in other areas. You know, looking back on it, having been told when I was 24 that, that I had, and it's very mild, so I just don't, I don't want to make a thing of it. You know, it doesn't affect my day-to-day life, but it, it probably explained why I was so easily distracted and it, and it probably explained why I was considered one of the naughty boys when I was at school. I'm not sure it explained why I was considered one of the naughty sub-lieutenants. That's probably a different story, but um, but it, it probably did explain why I had some issues. You know, I, school wasn't easy. Um, you know, I really had to focus. And you know, that you just heard my watch bang on the table. My dad gave me this watch. It's a, it's an Amiga Speedmaster. Dad gave me this for my 16th birthday, and I've worn it every day since I was 16. I've worn out several straps. I've still got the bracelet, but I've worn out lots of straps on it. This is the watch that NASA issues astronauts. That was the, ultimately, if you want to be a pilot, you want to be an astronaut. And I was much more interested in Apollo 13, the movie, than Top Gun, actually. But that's part of, that's part of you know, the focus. You know, some people use a rubber band. For me, it was, you know, this is part of who I want to be. And it's kind of become part of who I am and it's and it's you know one of the most important presents from my parents it was just a spot-on thing at the right time just to give you that little bit of focus especially when school was getting pretty hard just to get over the line and and I mean I, I didn't realize until about 10 years ago how hideously expensive they are now they weren't hideously expensive when dad bought this in 1970 something six but it was, it was still a lot of money and, and, and they made a sacrifice to do it and I always wanted to live up to it. I love the symbolism of that and, and uniform. I noticed a sporting team or different teams I work with or you watch a, a pilot or a flight attendant or you watch a, an admiral in the Navy and, and uniform does something to us. You know, we, we have a spring in the step, shoulders go back, there's a confidence around that. So I love the symbol of, symbolism of the watch. I love the passion. I heard a, a different tone in your voice and there's some emotion around that watch, isn't there? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I'm lucky. Both my, my mum and dad are still alive. So, you know, they can, they've watched my career unfold and, you know, I think they're, they're reasonably happy with what I kind of achieved in my Navy career. So um, that's, it's a good thing. And you know, I was down there this weekend. In fact, you know, mum's been a bit crook, so being able to spend some time with them was, was good. Well, we've done the progression of your career. We've done the personal story. Gosh, I love podcasts. And as I said, the Google search and and what's come out of this are two very different things. It would have been a two-minute podcast, Tony, with what we had on social media or lack of. Now tying those together in the program we're doing around social mastery. So the first step around that is self-awareness. You strike me as having very high levels of self-awareness. How do you train that with your team or other team members or what would your advice be to people listening to this to start that journey in self-mastery? How, how would you explain to someone, whether it's uniformed or someone APS, to increase that level of self-awareness? That's a really, that's, a, that's an interesting question. <laughs> self-awareness is, is one of those things. I guess we all, we all have an ego and it's understanding what your ego is, uh, I think, is part of it. And as I said before, you know, I'm a really team-oriented person. I like being in teams. I like working with teams. I like I like leading teams. And I think y- your self-awareness is based on on the people around you, the feedback that they give you. So you know, working in your team, whatever that team might be and, and you know and it doesn't have to be a formal work team it could be someone that you ride with on the weekend or it could be your church or, or whatever I think having those different kind of inputs that come from 
being in a team I think is really important in developing a sense of who you are and and I think if you're if you're you know as you get more senior in the organization the real beauty about teams is you can bring people along you can help kind of open them up so they can kind of get a sense of their full potential and I think that's that's the beauty about working in teams is the ability to have that self-awareness and if you if you're if you're really lucky to work in those teams where the leadership is really positive they expand you and that's what I try I've been really lucky I've worked in really good teams from tiny little teams to quite large teams but they've always been those environments where you're safe where your contribution is valued and where they give you room to do more where they give you room to make mistakes uh, and that's a really that's a really powerful thing when you're developing an idea about who you are. We have people listening to this uh, who work in uniform. We have people listening to this in APS. You've been on both, or you've had experience on both. So, what would your or what were your learnings and adaptations you made when you shifted from uniform to the public service? Yeah, I don't. I don't think. <laughs> I don't know, maybe people will tell me I'm a really bad public servant. I don't know whether there's, I don't know, I don't actually see a lot of difference. So my career was kind of split in two, my military career was kind of split in two parts. There was very much an operational part where you're immersed in a military environment and you, and you do military things. Uh, and the other part of my military career was much more, in that management, you know, acquisition, sustainment organisations where I've worked alongside public servants and contractors and industry in, in different sorts of team. And I've never actually, I've never seen a difference between the public service and the military in those, in those acquisition sustainment organisations where, you know, at least in defence, we're really lucky that we're unified by that powerful thing that, we're here to defend Australia. We have a sense of purpose. We have a sense of unity that revolves around that theme that we're supporting the Defence Force. So I, I don't see it as a military public service thing. I see it as we're all in one defence. We're all contributing to it. We all bring our own unique skills to it and, and our own different backgrounds. I value the people with commercial experience. I, I value the people with legal experience. I value the people who are good project schedulers. I, there's a whole range of people who come into defence not having worked in the military but bring all these unique skills that are absolutely vital to supporting the defence force. And I don't see a difference really in that environment. It's a really nice platform for my follow-up question with the recent announcement of the, the new name of the group. What's your vision over the next couple of years? Well, I think the vision is to, is to focus on what we do well, is to focus on you know, delivering that capability to the Navy and, and to the Army and to everybody else who uses the maritime, you know, in the maritime environment. I, I always talk to people about what unites us and, and what brings us together and what brings us to work. And the formation of the, the Naval Shipbuilding and Sustainment Group doesn't really change any of that, but it makes it more apparent and, and in some ways makes it uh, more direct. I like to think that for all of us, there's a thread that joins us to a soldier, a sailor, or an aviator who use the stuff that we acquire and sustain every day. The people who take it out, um, the people who train with it, the people ultimately who might have to take it to war. There's a thread that connects all of us. And the beauty about the group is we'll be able to highlight that thread much more vividly, I think, about we're coming to work to support these people, these young, and they are largely young Australians who take what we acquire and sustain to sea every day. I mean, right you know, today, there's 2,000 sailors at sea. That thread, I think the formation of the group allows us to focus uh, more clearly on that thread that joins us to those sailors who take the stuff that we acquire and sustain to sea. And, and I'd like to think that we can build a culture that's based on that service, that recognition 
of of what we're doing to support those those sailors who go to sea in the stuff that we acquire and sustain and i think the group makes that more vivid and and i think the culture will naturally grow out of that the focus certainly will increase on that you know it's a big complex organization we we do really big complex projects and we sustain really 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 complex equipment that's hard and and we spend an huge amount of taxpayers dollar and i'm really conscious that we are spending taxpayers dollars and every dollar we have to spend has to be focused on achieving the maximum value that we can squeeze out of it but i'm doing it for the sailors who have to take it to sea tony what's been really good my end listening to you now putting together a lot more about your background your story from the even irish catholic background the watch dyslexia at 24 your passion for the navy your vision for the new group there's a book called range by david epstein have you read that book it uh, counterbalances Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours theory, which I've never really agreed with because someone can do 10,000 hours really well and get you know, domain mastery. Someone can do 10,000 hours poorly and, and they're really bad. So it, it sort of implies, and he ripped that research off by another psychologist named Eric Anders, and there's a whole lot of stuff in the background behind that. But to the point, I don't think it's the 10,000 hours. I think it's the practice that someone has building on what they've already done. And that's what is in the book range, that the experience you have growing up, some of the struggles with learning, what you did through military school, then helicopters, and then where you are now has given you this skill set to help doing what you're doing right now, or what we call performance intelligence. So you could not have sat down as a two-year-old and said, here's the trajectory of my career path, but through choices and hard work, a bit of luck, a bit of support along the way. It's built to get you to where you are right now. And where we are right now, I'm conscious of taking your time. I could ask you questions for another hour, but we're going to wrap up with the high performance baker's dozen. That's 13 rapid fire questions specific to high performance. You don't know what I'm about to ask. Are you ready? We'll put some music behind this. Your time starts now. Question number one, your favourite song or band? It has to be quick answers, isn't it? So it's, um, you know, I grew up I'm a product of my of my age, I guess. I really like uh, the Divines, oh. <laughs> like Chrissy Hind, um, In Excess. Um, you know, all those. Got your favourite? Got to have one favourite. Can't have three. Oh, I'd pick one. I do. I have to pick one. We'll call it favourite. <laughs> Number two, favourite movie. Oh, probably Apollo thirteen. Favourite book. Favourite book. I I like reading. But I have a problem rereading books. So I, my favourite book is the next one. Okay. Well, the next question, I think I know the answer to this. Question number four, your favourite possession? Yeah, probably my watch. <laughs> question number five, favourite food? I do like a very nice glass of wine. Um, but, yeah, food. Um, we'll, we'll go with wine. We can go... Yeah. Food or fuel? Yeah. The yeah, next is that, subset is that, of is that I'll, I'll eat all I'll eat food out of all the colour groups. But you sounds like you eat food as a function, not because of taste as much. Yeah, if you've ever had my cooking, you'd understand that. <laughs> the next subset of questions is around wellbeing and productivity. Question number six: What time do you wake up and go to bed each day? Uh, so I I wake up early and I, I go to bed later than I'd like to. What's, what's early? So I'm, I'm normally awake around 5.30, 6 o'clock. Okay, true morning person. Question number seven, do you have a morning routine? Uh, yes. What does that look like? It's a routine. You know, my, my girls make fun of dad's, you know, the same bowl, the same breakfast cereal. I will have the same thing every day. Um, so, yes, there is a, there is a routine. And have you ever deviated from that, or what happens when you do deviate from that? Oh no, you have. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm not completely OCD. In fact, I'm not even mildly OCD. But it's there is a there is a routine, and an aircrew live like structure. So it it is it's one of those things. As you know, as my grandmother used to tell me, it's bad. Uh, it's bad luck to be superstitious. You have to think about it. 
It took a while for that to come back. <laughs> Question number and, eight. And, <laughs> and, that, and that is an aircrew thing. But it, but I, I will vary my routine. You know, we have to. Um, but yeah, but I have, you know, I'm very comfortable in my routine. Uh, question number eight, do you have a weekly fitness routine? And if so, what does that look like? <laughs> yeah, I do enjoy riding my push bike. So if I'm doing anything for fitness, it normally revolves around either my mountain bike here in Canberra or my road bike on on the coast. Um, the issue is at the moment, I'm probably not doing enough of it. Where you live, I know the geography well, you've got Wood Hill Mountain, one way yeah. and you've got Berry Mountain the other. So there's yeah. not a lot of flat riding. Oh, you can ride to the coast, um, but I I, I, uh, I do ride up Woodhill Mountain and I do ride up Berry Mountain. The the kind of Sunday loop used to be up Berry Mountain, along Camberwara, uh, tourist drive, then down Camberwara into Camberwara Village and out to Bomaderry and then back along the highway. That was a that was a nice ride. And, and coming down Camberwara, once they get the traffic lights off it from the rain, you can go on your push bike, you can go well past the speed limit coming down that hill. I've been down that and I've done that exact loop. I love it. Uh, question number nine, tell me one of your favourite go-to productivity tips. Go-to productivity. Oh, I'm the master of productive procrastination. Um, so, you know, so I can think of lots of things to do rather than the things I should be doing. There's research, though, around purposeful procrastination, just to close that out and not leave you hanging, that sometimes putting stuff off and thinking, ruminating, reflecting gives you a better answer. Let's yeah. roll that into number 10. Let's, let's roll that in. Your most vivid childhood memory. I've got a lot of happy childhood memories. I was a very happy kid. And I'm very thankful for being able to, I grew up on a beach down in, in Victoria, Chelsea, um, and being able to just play on the beach with the dog. We, I, had a, I got a boxer for my first birthday. So I grew up with Spike, the boxer dog, uh, and, and we were thick as thieves. He, in a lot of ways, he was a lot smarter than me, but you know, we just used to free roam in, uh, up and down the beach. Uh, so that's kind of, that's my happy place. Did Spike also leave you holding the evidence? Yes. <laughs> uh, question 11, biggest adversity you've faced or one of the biggest challenges you've faced? Uh, it's, the, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I had a very thankful life. I, I, you know, I haven't had a lot of personal adversity. You know, the, the hard thing is watching, is watching friends get sick. I've been to enough funerals for aviators and that's, you know, sadly, it used to be more in the old days, a bit more of a, an occupational hazard, knowing people having to break um, that kind of news to partners, and I've done that twice. That's challenging. One of the more personal challenging things to me was, was doing a, a search and rescue for some girls who had been washed off a tractor in Broughton Creek on the south coast. Um, and we, we actually found one of the girls in the creek who had, who had drowned. And, same age as my my daughter. That was a really that was a really tough day. Yeah. Wow. Uh, question number twelve. What achievement or achievements are you most proud of? Being part of some really high performing teams. I think that's that's been that's been a challenge. That's been that's been uh, a lot of fun. A lot of uh, there's a lot of reward looking back on it. Um, I spent a fair bit of time as a flying instructor and being able to take young kids through through those parts of their careers uh, and and help them go to the, get over those obstacles that we all meet on flying training um, that was also really rewarding the, the thing i'm most proud of is the fact that i have two kind of grown-up daughters and they still talk to their dad question number 13 what is your definition of high performance my definition of high performance is achieving the goals that you set i think that's you know, you set yourself realistic goals and then you work together in your, you know, in your team-based environment, then I think then, you, then that is the definition of high performance. Um, you know, our environment is, is like that. I've enjoyed today. I've learned a lot about you. There's so much more to you than we thought on Thursday afternoon last week. I love that we are running this program around social mastery. And a lot of this is the passion that you and the team have to upskill employees in all ages, in all stages of their career, 
with those skills that you know, you've had along the way. Some of them you had via formal learning, some of them you've sought yourself. But from our end at Strive Stronger, we're really excited partnering with you to, to really help people focus on this essential skill set. And I thank you again today for your time. But can I thank you for your authenticity? I can imagine it would be challenging sometimes for someone in your position to drop the guard a little bit, but um, I really, really uh, do applaud you for coming here today, your whole self, your, your full character, and really giving us a bit of an insight into you, what made you, what drives you. I think your next career, by the way, is an astronaut. I think you're only, <laughs> you get around this hour, you know, hang around me long enough, I'm going to get you to 100 plus. You know, that is one of my goals in life, to get as many people as I possibly can to live to 100 plus. You'll meet Dr. Tom Buckley in our program, and we're not joking. So <laughs> watch this space, you know, be on the front of all the broadsheets tomorrow. Next career as, a, <laughs> as an astronaut. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do want to thank you for today and, and for bringing your true self. No, uh, my pleasure. Thank you.